always interesting in real time to be interested in how it is that balance and ease and peace come into being and what it is that gets in the way. And one of the things we definitely learn, probably, I'm assuming, we're in the process of learning, have learned, that trying to be balanced or trying to be equanimous is stressful. I don't know if I mentioned this the other night when I gave the first part of the talk on equanimity, something uh, Michelle McDonald said at the near the end of a longer three-month retreat. She said something like, one of the great things about a long retreat is that you are able to put aside some of the false equanimity. We're, we're pretty sure <clears throat> that that's what Buddhism is about, so we kind of jump into pretending that it's okay. You know, and you might have caught yourself with a friend or a partner oh, it's okay, <laughs> you know. And it's a little bit like what we call Minnesota nice, where we just, you know, say it's okay because that's what we think we're supposed to say. I'm the kind of person who doesn't have a problem with stuff. And it doesn't, we don't bother to check, like, are, am I having a problem with it or not? We just presume I shouldn't be having a problem with it. So I want to talk more tonight about equanimity and in particular um, how insight, how the deepening of wisdom leads to this more profound balance, stability, equanimity. And um, one thing I like to mention a lot comes from a recent book by Gil Fransdahl where he uh, translated a relatively short collection of verses from the Buddha called the Book of Eights, um, considered to be one of the early collections of teachings in the Buddha's voice to some degree, as much as scholars can discern that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the two, I should say, two out of the four main points that Gill thinks come out of this, these uh, short collection of teachings, I forget how many verses, but maybe around 20 poems or verses, each one, maybe two or three pages long, is um, a theme that comes up over and over again is, what is it that a sage is? And normally, or usually in these early discourses, a sage is described by, you know, how they are in experience, peaceful with conditions. And then the means is to practice being peaceful with conditions. And I've always loved that integrity between the practice and the aspiration for freedom. There's a real alignment between 
what we're doing on the cushion or on the chair, each sit, each walking period, and what our heart aspires toward, the fruit of the practice, the release, the unshakable release of the heart. So equanimity is like this. I mean, I said a few minutes ago that we don't try to be equanimous, but we do. This this is really helps us understand the basic practice of opening and seeing clearly or being intimate, seeing things as they are, because that being peaceful with conditions depends on that clear connection, that clear comprehending, seeing, feeling things as they are. That's where we can practice allowing the experience to be the way it is. And that's where we get better at being peaceful with conditions. But first, the first step, of course, is we have to connect. We have to open, we have to see. And it's not like we can break it. You know, a lot of times we get a little bit tight about not being perfect at the practice, getting lost in thought, becoming reactive. Sharon Salzberg uses a very simple um, metaphor about being on a life is like being on a tightrope, you know, and as soon as the heart gets a, a caught up in greed, I lose my balance and I fall. Or as soon as I get aversive, push away, try to get rid of something, I lose my balance and fall off the tightrope. Or as soon as I space out, get sleepy, or get amped up and restless, get lost in doubt, I fall off the tightrope. And then the great, this is the kicker of the, you know, the sort of little teaching story, but we always land on another tightrope. So there we are again, you know, having just fallen, there we are in a tightrope. So how are we going to relate to having fallen with greed, with aversion, with doubt, or with balance? And the, the habit might be to think about all the previous moments where we fell instead of realizing we've just landed in the present moment. And we have this amazing, beautiful opportunity to relate to it in balance, with balance, with integrity, with compassion, with real interest, joy, with calm, with equanimity. If we want to be peaceful, we practice being peaceful with conditions. Peaceful with conditions only makes sense when we're actually exposed or meeting the conditions of the moment. I mean, it's easy for us to say, I'm okay with, you know, the environmental crisis when we have no idea what's happening. Or I'm okay with racial injustice when we haven't been a careful student of how people are being oppressed. Or I'm okay with, you know, and you fill in the blank. 
Being relaxed and engaged and fearless and willing to do what needs to be done, like the beauty of that, the integrity of that always demands a kind of exposure. That's when it's impressive. You know, when you see somebody raising young children and they're really in it and they have a good sense of humor, right? They have, at least in the moment you're seeing them, have some balance. Or somebody, an activist, or somebody, you know, willing to show up in whatever they're moved to show up. And to see that person in moments really having their heart 100% in their life, open, engaged, responding, that's impressive. What's not impressive is when we catch ourselves or catch other people like uh, trying to live our lives by not being there. (laughs) I mean, it's understandable. Closing down is definitely understandable, definitely worthy of forgiveness, but it's not going to help. You know, avoiding life isn't, it's like numbness as a strategy for living. When we say it out loud like that, it's clear it doesn't make sense. Can you imagine a self-help book? (laughs) I got the answer, you know, just numb out. I recommend Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Now. Interesting how many of these I know. (laughs) I just saw recently, I think it was National Public Radio, has, uh, I think it may be a hundred really funny books. I thought, I sent it to myself, so I'd have it, it's like, I need that list. I need to get some of those funny books on my iBooks account, so when I'm feeling whatever I'm feeling, I can go and read a funny book. This is what Sylvia Borstein says about equanimity in her book on the Ten Paramis. She writes, The practice of equanimity develops the habit habit of accepting by experiencing the happiness of impartiality, by paying attention to the whole truth of every moment. That's the exposure, right? That it comes, impartiality, balance, equanimity, comes from the exposure of opening to the whole truth of every moment, supported by inviting and acknowledging that this is a lawful cosmos, just and comforting in its dependability. How is the cosmos dependable? She goes on, she says, right, it's breathtakingly the only way that it can be My heart opening with equanimity can respond with compassion. The only way that it can be. We can count on life being the only way that it can be. And it's so interesting how sure we can be, you know, with statements like, it's not supposed to be this way. This shouldn't be happening. I mean, we felt that, I'm sure, a lot. I feel that regularly reading the news. 
how can this be happening? It shouldn't be this way. You know, how can people be this wrong, this ignorant, this, you know, whatever? But we can ask, like, how are we, why are we so sure it shouldn't be this way? Like, what understanding does that come from, that it shouldn't be this way? Is it helpful to have that understanding? And this is really part of the balance. There's a, a really great uh, teaching from Padmasambhava, this person who brought, one of the people who brought Buddhism up into Tibet a long time ago, of course. And this uh, very well-known teacher, Guru Rinpoche, is also how he's referred to in the Tibetan tradition. Um, although my view, my understanding, my wisdom is as vast, boundless as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So even though we, probably more ordinary types, we have glimpses, the vastness, everything is breathtakingly as it should be. Like when we're seeing from the big point of view. The point of view of big bangs and big dissolutions and, you know, all we have to do is study geological time and it's just amazing what that does to our current state of affairs on the planet. When we just realize what's happened over whatever it's been, number of billion years that they imagine the planet has been around, and continents coming together, and mountains dissolving, and asteroids hitting, and periods of great ice ages, and periods of great heat, and periods of oceans flooding most of the planet, and It's just interesting that I, there was a really great article about what this geologist, I think the person might have been a geologist, I'm not sure, um, but we think, you know, that we have so amazingly scarred the planet, but this person just is imagining, well, what would be noticed in 10,000 years, like if the human race got gets wiped out, or a hundred thousand years, or a million years, you know, or a billion years, what trace? And he, he, this person points to periods of time, like we've been around, you know, as civilized, in, in civilized form for, you know, 10,000 years, give or take. But there are periods of geologic time, you know, like when the dinosaurs reigned, that was like, I think it was a hundred million years. Now, 10,000 years compared to a hundred, and the trace of that period is very thin. Like what's left of all that time that can be found in sort of 
They didn't have plastic, presumably, but we don't really know. In a hundred million years, the dinosaurs could have gotten really smart. You know, they might have gone way beyond plastics. Who knows? We really don't know. <laughs> we we're, we think, and you know, this is sort of this arrogant certainty again, like we really know, but we really don't know. It's interesting how that vastness is useful for equanimity. And then the other side is, but my attention to karma, to this deep, profound valuing of non-harming, not wanting to plant seeds of harm, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. And, you know, we really want to see how they support each other. It's like, it's exactly this precise, intimate attention to how we might be complicit and how suffering happens, where equanimity, only really place, equanimity can be expressed. But it's really easy to be equanimous. I talked about this a couple nights ago. When we're kind of in a place where no one's bothering us and we don't have any responsibilities. But when we really care about life and justice and taking care of those who need taken care of and taking care of ourselves, well, then it's not easy to show up because it's messy and it's complex and we never have certainty. Like, we have to make all kinds of choices, but we don't have certainty. And pretending we have certainty actually is confusing. It's like even with something like marriage or whether or not to have children, there's no certainty in these choices. Should I go on the Common Ground nine-day Buddhist meditation retreat? There's no certainty in any of this stuff. Yet, not choosing is just as impactful as choosing. Like we don't, we don't sort of get free from the effects of intentional actions by saying it's too complex to choose or it's too ambiguous. Should I put my heart into the pipeline they're building across Minnesota and try to stop that or try to promote that? I mean, it's complex. Do I do that or not? Or do I do this? What do I do with my time? What do I do with my money, with my resources? It's not clear. But saying, like using the excuse, well, because it's not clear, I don't have to do anything, and when we check what that feels like, that doesn't feel right either. So this is our predicament with equanimity. Vast as the sky, as fine as a grain of barley flour. In um, Maha Mangala Sutta, a mind unshaken when touched by the worldly state. See? Unshaken when touched, not when not touched. Unshaken when touched by worldly states, sorrowless, stainless, and secure. This is the blessing supreme.
another text from the Buddha. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. And one phrase I like that comes later in the Buddhist tradition, the winds of circumstance blow through emptiness. Whom can they harm? So I just want to go through uh, equanimity. I mentioned that even the idea of equanimity is quite powerful. As long as we realize it, use it as an inspiration. I mean, I'll just give you an example of this. And we've all probably do something similar to this in our own way. But for me, the word ease is a useful mantra. And sometimes when I'm doing metta, loving-kindness practice, I'll use that word, not metta, not love, not a full phrase. And it will be just that radiant wish for ease here in the body, in the heart, out there in everybody's heart, everyone's life, ease. Ease with conditions. This is the taste of Nibbana, right? This is what the Buddha teaches. The taste of Nibbana is ease no matter the conditions. It's an unconditioned peace or happiness, not dependent on what comes and goes. So even that idea can be used as a kind of peg to push out of the mind reactivity, right? Because when we're thinking and not thinking very skillfully, we can use more skillful thinking to balance the mind. And it's hard when we're in a full-blown reactive state, whether it's lust or wanting something to happen or anger or aversion, but it's amazing when, when we actually bring in that thought about the possibility of being at ease with the present moment conditions, not needing the conditions to be other than they are. It feels so like such a useful break. Now we may fall back into the storm in just a matter of a minute or a few seconds, but just to realize we can step out of it, just to realize that the mind values the idea of being at ease no matter the conditions, being peaceful no matter the conditions. And then as I spoke a lot about the previous night when I was talking about equanimity, one of the things we learn with our samadhi practices, working with our primary anchor, like the breath, is we learn how to seclude the mind from agitation, right? And we can be somewhat directive at times with this. And as uh, Wynne has been leading the loving-kindness practice, you know, we're encouraging people to experiment using the phrases and the mental image. You can bring the person or yourself to mind or have some visual image and the repetition it's a little bit like that peg analogy again, which the Buddha used. Because when I'm, even if I'm not feeling a lot of loving kindness, but I'm regularly repeating 
may this heart be at ease, or may you be happy, whatever. And I have some mental image, and I do it again, and I do it again, and I do it again. And each time I repeat that phrase, have that thought, I do my best to connect with the meaning, the feeling that's there, the generosity behind that wish, the goodness that that thought points to or represents. I do my best to connect to the roots out of which that thought came. And it's really protecting. And the mind begins to retreat from whatever else it might be doing, worrying, planning, hating. And eventually that seclusion from more gross and unwholesome mental activity begins to feel like something. It feels good, right? Mental bliss. The bliss of being retreated from unwholesome states, unafflicted from greed and aversion. And then the mind attention can start to pay attention to how good it feels to be secluded from unwholesome states. And then it, the pleasantness, the inner wholesome pleasantness of being retreated from unwholesome states gets stronger. So then it's easier to pay attention to. And that's what I mentioned is the feedback loop that can take the mind into very deep states of concentration where the mind is profoundly secluded from unwholesomeness. And so there's a very deep healing, spiritual healing that can happen in those peaceful states. And the practice there is to abide, to rest, to trust in the wholesomeness of the heart and mind, knowing that it's not going to last forever, but we're not worried that it's not going to last forever. What the mind, what makes that beautiful concentrated state beautiful is the mind is noticing that it's beautiful. That's the object of attention, that it's beautiful, that it's still, that it's peaceful, that it's refined, that it's not um, divided up, right? It's whole, there's a wholeness in the experience. And so it's noticing the wholesomeness, the wholesome aspects, qualities of that. This is why in so many traditions there's prayer and other beautiful rituals that help the mind to collect, <coughs> gather around wholesome states. And then, like I mentioned, there's a lot of equanimity but because the mind is in a beautiful place, it isn't bothering running around doing this and that with greed and aversion. Right? It's content, so it's not relying on greed and aversion to get what it wants, because it has what it wants. It has contentment, it has peace, it has wholeness, temporarily, but real, nonetheless. So it doesn't need greed and aversion, so it has a spiritual vacation from greed and aversion. That's kind of the definition of samadhi, a deep, deeper concentrated state, 
is the mind having a vacation from the unwholesome qualities. And it feels refreshed. And that, as I mentioned a couple nights ago, that lingering taste of non-reactivity we then take when the mind returns to its more normal state of consciousness, more normally reactive. But now it's sort of chilled out and it feels the, you know, trigger to be irritated. But because of the aftertaste of equanimity goes, I could get irritated, but I don't think I will. I could, you know, look for something to make me happy, but it's really nice not needing anything to make me happy. Right? So we we begin to explore this equanimity that isn't based on seclusion or favorable conditions. And then the more we develop wisdom practice, vipassana, where we're sitting and we're not really trying to seclude the attention and we get to the place where we're seeing a lot of objects of experience coming and going. This sensation and that sensation, pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, sounds, thoughts, thoughts about thoughts, thoughts about the thoughts about the thoughts, hearing, seeing, sensation, pain, pleasant sensation, one thing after another, right? Six sense gates, phenomena coming and going, but the the continuity of present moment awareness is pretty good, so we say this is a time when there's some momentum, right? some continuity of present moment awareness. And then this is where the mind really begins to get like the taste of equanimity with conditions. Things really start to open up in practice here. And and one of the things the mind notices, like in that, it's like every experience comes and goes. It's like Ajahn Sumedho's mantra to himself is, and it's really just the summation of the Buddhist teachings, all phenomena come and go and are not self. And that's kind of our lived experience when our practice has some momentum. An interesting thought comes. But it isn't really worth grasping because in the next moment it's gone and there's another thought. And there's this, and pain may come, but it doesn't last for very long. It's like uh, sort of in motion. This is uh, Sharon Salzberg talking about that experience of pain when we're seeing it in this moment-by-moment way. This is from her book, Heart as Wide as the World. Opening to painful experiences does not mean a passive acceptance of pain. Rather, we learn to go into the heart of each moment's experience, even if it's painful, because there, unclouded by conditioning, we discover our lives. The effort to push away what is unpleasant, the tendency to project pain into the future and then feel overwhelmed by it, the interpretations we add to it all 
keep us from having a personal, direct, and intimate acquaintance with what we're actually experiencing. So when we observe something like pain directly, we come to see its actual nature. Like everything else, pain is a changing phenomenon with no inherent substance. Rather than viewing it as a monolithic entity taking over my body, I saw the pain as a kaleidoscopic world of ever-shifting sensations, tingling, tightness, heat, throbbing, and a thousand other qualities of sensation. These were what I had been lumping together and calling pain. By seeing these component parts, all in essence coreless and ephemeral, I finally learned to explore the texture of pain rather than feeling crushed by it. And in truth, we're not really crushed by pain. We're crushed by our ideas of pain. Right? It's the ideas of pain, the ideas of suffering that are really, really hard to bear. So there truly is suffering. Pain, ordinary emotional and physical pain, even really extreme pain, I think it's fair to say it's really skillful to assume it's workable. But what isn't workable are our thoughts about pain and suffering. Because those monsters are monstrous. <laughs> right? As, I don't know, it might have been Sylvia somewhere, but some teacher in a, in a kind of insight meditation tradition. Just, I remember saying so kind of poignantly, sincerely, we just have to stop scaring ourselves. And when we learn to meet experience as it is in this kaleidoscopic, one thing after another way, as, as overwhelming as it can be initially to just trust it, to trust the flow, always one thing after another, it means that everything's workable because nothing lasts that long to have a, for a, there to be somebody who has a problem with it. And this is the beginning of the three doorways into deeper insight. The Buddha talks about this as the three characteristics. The characteristic of impermanence, anicca, the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and the characteristic of impersonal nature, not-self, anatta. And these are just three facets or three ways of directly experiencing the way it is, seeing its changing nature, seeing its unsatisfactory nature, seeing its impersonal nature. And this is what really strengthens equanimity. This is how equanimity grows, by learning to trust, to develop enough samadhi, enough of this wisdom awareness, stability of a present moment awareness, so that we're seeing this more subtle underlying nature. Not so much that I'm sitting here waiting for the bell to ring, but there's this flow of sensation, flow of mental activity, flow of sound, never really lasting very long before becoming the next, and then the next experience, and then the next, and the next. 
And even the habits that get triggered to resist and to judge and to define, even those very natural reactive tendencies, they're just part of the same flow. They're not like a problem for the flow. Like there's the neurotic me, everything's moving, everything's flow, I love the flow, I'm a strong believer in flow, totally want to go on a flow retreat. <laughs> Nowadays, you know, people want to use hallucinogens to connect with the flow or do extreme sports or, you know. But what we've done is we divided our life into me, the not flow, and flow, transcendent flow. But our practice is to be that neurotic, resisting, tight, reactive person and to be willing to be really, in a kind, loving way, to be really intimate with that and to realize that's the flow. That's what flow looks like in this moment, twisted steel. But strangely, when the mind is patient and not arrogantly sure it's a problem, strangely the twisted steel is in motion. It's coming and going too. It is flow. The deepest fear is flow. Shame is flow. Thinking you're better than everyone in the room is flow. It's a movement. It doesn't really last. Even obsessive thinking. That's one of the real telltale signs of having been at it for a while is we're less afraid of getting really neurotic and tight because we know it's not what it appears to be. And even whatever hole we've dug for ourselves and the harm that we've set in motion, we live with this understanding that it's workable. Whatever's been constructed can be deconstructed. And it's only kind of self-centered ignorance that has a problem doing the next thing, taking care of business, you know, the attention to karma that's as fine as a grain of barley flour, just doing the next thing that needs to be done. So we dug a hole. Okay, how do we get out of this hole? Who do we make amends to? What needs to be said? What needs to be done? Who needs to be forgiven? This is from Saida Upandita. Up to the time when the arising and passing away of phenomena can be seen lucidly and sharply, any yoga, yogi's practice will be variable and shaky, for faith and wisdom, energy and concentration are not yet in balance. If, however, the hurdles of imbalance between energy and concentration, faith and wisdom, will be rectified, at this point we say the yogi is endowed with the state of equanimity, which is the balancing of these four factors. 
It may seem that the noting or mindfulness effortlessly carrying on by itself. So faith and wisdom, energy and concentration. And he's going to talk about this, but when we're really impressed by what the mind wisdom is seeing, we get too much faith energy and we start personalizing the insights, the understanding. I'm really getting it. This is amazing. Who can I tell? You know, I should write a book. <laughs> or do something, you know, carve it in stone. I used to have those thoughts. It's like, I was so in love with the Dharma. I thought, you know, with the new technology, we could use lasers and write the teachings in stone, put them in like in the caves on the shore of Lake Superior so that even if we really... Or we'll have to create a language, we'll have to have like text so they can learn the language that the teachings were recorded in, you know, and it just got really complicated. <laughs> it's its own very particular flavor of dukkha. <laughs> this wisdom, faith, imbalance, you know, where we feel so compelled to do something without realizing it's just something being known. It's just the next thing being known, arising and passing, whatever it is. And the other balancing when the practice gains momentum is between energy, making effort, and the ease of concentration, the letting go, the stillness of concentration. Finding that balance, because sometimes we still want to work when we don't need to make effort. And sometimes we really want to be still, but some effort needs to be made. So remember I mentioned this the first night when I was talking about equanimity. Equanimity is a very alive dynamic. It's like I use the image of somebody standing. When you're really mindful when you're standing, you notice there are so many tiny, tiny little adjustments. If you haven't done standing meditation, do that. It's very interesting to see all the little corrections. I mean, it's kind of amazing. You don't see too many animals, you know, weighing whatever we weigh, basically balancing on very little surface contact with the earth. <laughs> It's a little strange. I mean, we're definitely top-heavy. <laughs> so it's sort of an unusual situation, you know, just kind of keeping upright like that. And it's a nice, I think, analogy for equanimity. And that's why it can feel like a real torment at first when we're really have some momentum and we're seeing one phenomena after another and we're beginning to discern that nobody's in charge, it's all flow, it's all activity, it's all movement, mental movement, physical movement, sound is moving, sight is moving, sensations moving, smell and taste is moving, thought and emotion moving, right? Nobody's in charge, no beginning, no end. It can feel like really hard for me not to lose balance in that. But over time, that keeping in balance becomes 
is seen rather as nature itself, not projecting that somebody is doing the balance. Right? And then that's when these that's when Saida is saying that's when we have real equanimity because it's effortless. So now it's nature keeping the mind in balance. It's the nature of the mind to stay in balance. The nature of all the causes and conditions that have been developed through the course of practice, for a while at least. And then the mind can really explore these three doorways of impermanence, unsatisfactory nature, impersonal nature, as liberating doorways, as doorways that deeply refine equanimity. Basically, we're learning to the nth degree, the mind is learning to align with change, to align with the unsatisfactory nature that nothing actually, no phenomena is actually worthy of grasping, of identifying with. Objects of experience are actually perfect for allowing and definitely not designed for attachment. And we learn that deeply. That's the insight into dukkha. And then the impersonal nature that this flow doesn't refer back to anybody. Lots of flow, complex, but it doesn't refer back to anything or anyone. It's just what it is. One thing after another being known. And you can see how the deepening, even on an intellectual level, really leads to a deeper peace with conditions. This is the rest of this uh, passage from Sayadaw's book. This is his book, In This Very Life, a really powerful book by Sayada Upandita, this well-known Burmese teacher who died a few years back. At first, there is no equilibrium among mental states, and the yogi is constantly careening from enthusiasm to doubt, from overexertion to laziness. Anybody sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, that's us. <laughs> right? Careening from enthusiasm to doubt, overexertion to laziness, giving up, if you don't like the word laziness, thinking we need a break. As the practice continues, however, the enlightenment factor of equanimity arises, and then mindfulness seems to go along by itself. At this time, we can experience great comfort. To jump forward into the modern metaphor, we become drivers of, the, of a luxury automobile, going along an untrafficked freeway with the car on cruise control. Equanimity does not arise easily in the minds of beginning yogis. Though these yogis may be diligent in trying to be mindful from moment to moment, equanimity comes and goes. The mind will be well balanced for a little while, and then it will go off again. Step by step, equanimity is strengthened. The intervals when it is present grows more prolonged and frequent. Eventually, equanimity becomes strong enough to qualify as a factor of awakening. 
And so we say here then that equanimity is arising because of understanding or wisdom. It's not a function of the particular objects that are being known. It's a function of the wisdom that's understanding the experience in the moment. So just to reflect about, you know, our own experience with anicca, the truth of change, and just uh, moments of being with experience. And you'll just notice sometimes it feels being in the flow can be very enlivening, feels really a little uh, blissful. Sometimes I like to talk about joy like the initial rapture and joy arises for us when the mind, the wisdom in the mind, is seeing experience in a more natural way, unhindered by like greed and aversion, or too much energy or too little energy, no doubt. So the hindrances aren't hindering the attention, the wise attention. And so the mind sees that, that I was describing, you know, things coming and going, but no friction, no part of the mind having a problem with objects of experience arising and being known, arising and being known. So notice, see if you can notice the delight. This is from Steve Armstrong talking about this place in practice. When the mind is unhindered in doing what it does, knowing it takes great delight. So now we would say this is more of an awareness. So instead of feeling like this is sort of initially when we're starting and our mind is really distracted, we really connect in a more kind of forceful way. The attention lands and almost feels like we're like taking hold of the object for a moment. But now the practice is more of an aware, awareness orientation. We're just letting the objects go. We're not feeling like anybody, including the awareness, has to do anything with the objects. It's more like awareness is the space and objects are coming and going in that space. Awareness is unstained by the objects coming and going. So that's the delight part of it. And when fear arises because of change, it's because we think, I got to get on top of this flow. I got to define it, organize it, manage it, and then we get problems. So that just that's just an interesting, like when you're practicing with this doorway of anicca, change, this is the terrain. Feeling the bliss, the rapture, that comes when the mind is willing to let everything like rest in awareness and objects are coming and going and really beginning to feel that quality of effortlessness. Like finally free of the neurotic idea of me having to know the object. Because initially we need a little of that, sending the mind to the object. Oh yeah, breathing in is like this. Have you got that? habit of needing to name it, breathing in is like this, you know, and 
that we do sometimes when it's useful. But there are times when we don't have to do that, and there's real delight. And then we wonder, whoa, this is too much. And then, not delight, fear. And then trust, then delight. So that's the trend. Now with dukkha, it's really more at this level of, uh, it's kind of this sobering realization, liberating, but very sobering, poignant realization that the world of experience isn't here to take care of us, to make me happy. There is no experience, no sense experience that is going to make us happy or satisfied or safe. It can't happen. And so, as we're in that same place, there's some momentum, awareness, wisdom awareness is knowing this is being known, this is being known, this is being known. But now the doorway of dukkha is being contemplated because the mind is naturally, wisdom is naturally interested. Right? So it might be interested in change, but it might be interested in the unsatisfactory nature. So we contemplate it because that's what wisdom is interested in. So in the experience of this object is being known, this is being known, this is being known. What we're really contemplating is, as we're resting in the awareness of one object after another being known, this isn't very satisfying. This isn't worthy of grasping. This can't really feed me in any way, really take care of me in any way. The only thing that makes sense is to let go, to not be attached, to not expect anything from sense experience. It's kind of like this profound spiritual grieving, but it's liberating because we're grieving the loss of ignorance. The ignorant idea that eventually, when I get my act together, I'm going to have an experience that finally, once and for all, is going to be satisfactory. And I'm going to be safe, I'm going to feel fed and complete, and I'll be done. Like I'll be in heaven for all eternity, that idea. Because that's, it's sort of an adult spiritual equivalent of the child you know, being taken care of by the parent. We want to be saved by life, by some experience, spiritual or otherwise. And as much as we look, we don't find it. We never find it. It isn't going to be found. Wise people tell us, you're not going to find it. Check it out. Trust your experience. Have you found it yet? We've been looking pretty hard, all of us, but we haven't found it. So that's the terrain of this second insight. And the equanimity grows out of the deepening insight into dukkha. It's liberating, just like the insight into anicca, change, is liberating. And the last one, anatta, seeing the impersonal nature, right? So it's like the, sometimes wisdom wants to contemplate how impersonal the flow of experience is, one thing being known after another thing being known, how looking with real care, with real integrity, 
I don't, the mind or wisdom doesn't find that what can be known, what's here to be known, it can't find it referring back to anything. It only ever finds something being known. Something is being known, something is being known. But that it refers back to me, that's not found. This is from Saida Utejaniya, another Burmese Buddhist monk. Before we can effectively practice mindfulness meditation, we must understand right view. By simple observation with a calm and aware mind, we will soon see the mind as nature, not I, not self, not personal. No one is there. The mind is a natural phenomenon. You are practicing to discover this nature. You see the profound equanimity here. If we take a can of paint and throw it in space, you know, the space isn't affected by that. The Buddha had a beautiful uh, analogy. I won't get it exactly right, but the, I'll get the right idea. He's talking about, uh, you know, sunshine coming up in the morning, shining in, right? And asks the monks or the people there, where is that sunlight going to hit? Well, it's going to hit the west wall. It's going to come in the east window. It's going to hit the west wall. Okay, and if there's not a west wall, if there's not a floor, right? if there's nothing there, where does it land? So there are a lot of images like this. Uh, the one I also like, I forget where it came from. I'm not sure it goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha. About someone in a rowboat at night rowing across. They have a lantern so people can see them. And then they crash into another boat. And he grabs his lantern. You know, why didn't you see me? I had my lantern. Screaming, yelling. And as he gets finally a good view, he sees that the other boat is empty. There's nobody there. What happens to the person's anger? It's hard to be angry. It's hard to take the accident personally when there's nobody in the other boat to blame. It's just causes and conditions. It doesn't refer back to an idiot who should have seen me because I had a light on, right? <laughs> so it's like a lot of our drama naturally falls away when we realize our experience doesn't refer back to anybody. So when we, you know, just naturally when you have some momentum you might just see that wisdom in the mind naturally is interested in one of these three doors. Interested in change, the incessantness of change, or the unsatisfactory nature that no experience provides a satisfactory landing for me, for the ego, where I feel I've got something I want, I own it. Nothing refers back to anything. And we just let wisdom see through that frame. 
notice that truth in terms of this experience being known, this experience being known. So we don't really change what we're doing, we're just noticing the next phenomena, whether it's the primary anchor or whatever's predominant in that moment being known, but we're studying dukkha in light of one thing being known after another, or change, or the impersonal nature, and that's how we grow equanimity. The deepest equanimity comes out of the deepening insight into the way it is, changing, unsatisfactory, and not referring back to anything. We've always been living in this world. It's always been this way. We're not waking up to something new. We're waking up to the way it is, always has been. It's totally trustworthy. Even if it, you know, rocks our world, it's just part of maturing as a human being to get grounded in the world we've been living in so we can be more skillful. So let's leave it here tonight. Take a few seconds to let go of the words. for just a few seconds, deeply trusting the way that it is now. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.